You know, I don't know about you, but I love summer. I like the uh, green grass. I like the stuff that grows in the garden. I like to be outside. I like to play with our grandkids and to golf and do all those things that summer affords. I like to watch the birds and the animals enjoying the, the, the warmth and the light of this season. But I also love being in worship with you together. This is where we work on the ground of our faith. This is where we uh, soak up the wisdom of God's word. This is where we can let our spirits be free to find love and experience hope at the hands of our creator. This is where we sing. This is where we offer our praise to God, the one who is the source of our life. So thank you for getting uh, here today uh, to share in all of this time together. Let's pray, shall we? God, it is your name that is on our lips today, so we come to profess your goodness and acknowledge you as the one who has the power to bless our lives. Uh, forgive the hesitancies in our faith that make us comfortable to be your people in name, but reluctant to be your people in deed. So we want to commit ourselves anew to you today with a full measure of devotion and dedication. So God, bless our worship as we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the great proofs uh, of the supernatural origin of the Bible is that it tells the truth about people. As you read the Bible, you will find that it discloses the full range of human activity, even the dark side of people. On the pages of God's Word, you will find stories about murder, theft, embezzlement, drunkenness, adultery, rage, moral perversion, revenge, mass murder, corrupt officials, bribery, religious impostors, and more. In short, the Bible tells us the whole truth about the human condition, doesn't shy away from painting the darker tones of human sin. Theologians talk about the fact that sin has affected every part of us, body, mind, spirit, emotions, will, conscience, intellect, and soul. All of us are tainted with sin, and that stain has reached every part of our life. Now, Romans 3.23 in the New Testament reminds us that everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. To say that is to simply acknowledge that that is true of every one of us. We've all sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. So our text today proves that point. Genesis chapter 20 is the story of two people who appear to have switched roles. We have Abraham, who's supposed to be the saint, and Abimelech, the pagan king, but Abimelech uh, but Abraham looks more like the pagan in this story, and Abimelech like the saint. So let's uh, dig into the story, and beginning in verse 1. Abraham moved south to the Negev and lived for a while between Kadesh and Shur. And then he moved on to Gerar. While living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced his wife, Sarah, by saying, She is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought to him, at his palace. Now Gerar is in the area that we now call the Gaza Strip. And when Abraham and Sarah entered this area, word came to Abimelech, the king, that a beautiful woman had come to town. And as was the custom of the day, the king would take any unmarried woman for himself and add her to his harem. Abraham, fearing the king might have him murdered in order to obtain Sarah, lied about Sarah, calling her his sister instead of his wife. Now, if that all sounds familiar to you, it's because it's, the not, it's not the first time that 
Abraham has told this particular lie. According to Genesis chapter 12, he did the same thing many years earlier during his time in Egypt. And now it's some 23 or 24 years later, and he does it again. But why? Well, first Abraham lied because he was trying to justify his sin. Verse 11 says, Abraham replied, I thought this is a godless place. They will want my wife and will kill me to get her. But Abraham made two mistakes. One, he assumed that no one in Gerar feared God. However, in this story, Abimelech clearly respects the Lord God. And two, Abraham attributed evil motives to Abimelech for no apparent reason. It's true that they might have killed him because of his wife, but the men of Gerar have given no evidence of that fact. And even if they did, that still does not justify his lie. Now, secondly, Abraham lied because he was trying to rationalize his sin. Verse 12 says, and she really uh, is my sister, for we both have the same father, but different mothers. And I married her. And that was true. This is Sarah, his half-sister. So in, th in a sense, he could justify his lie by saying, well, it's partially true. But this case illustrates for us that a half-truth is always a whole lie. Since Abraham's intention was to cover the truth, not to reveal it, it's still a lie. And then third, Abraham lied because he talked Sarah into joining him. Verse 13, when God called me to leave my father's home and to travel from place to place, I told her, do me a favor, wherever we go, tell the people that I'm your brother. Now this verse really um, uh, reveals the low state of Abraham's thinking at this point. In a sense, he appears to be blaming God for causing the problem by making him leave his native area, his father's household in the first place. And he further compounds the problem by using a line that men have been using on women since time immemorial. He says, if you really love me, Sarah, you'll do this for me. And while Sarah may be faulted for going along with the lie, clearly the responsibility rests on Abraham's shoulders. Now we don't have to look far for the underlying cause of Abraham's sin. It's his lack of faith in God because he doubted that God could take care of him. He doubted that God could take care of him in this situation. So he decides to lie in order to help God out. But God doesn't need that kind of help. There are basically two kinds of theology, if we boil it down to the, its most simplest um, uh, form. And the two kinds of theology is either we have a big God and little me, or we have little God and big me. See, when our God is big enough, we view ourselves uh, uh, it, it differently. We, we're not gonna stoop to foolish deception as a way of life. But when our God is too small, we're forced to compromise our standards because we don't think God can handle life. And uh, Abraham had this kind of little God mentality and he feels compelled to take matters into his own hands to help God out. So what can we say about Abraham's sin? Well, a lot of things, it was cowardly, it was deliberate, it was dishonest, it jeopardized Sarah's purity, it misled an innocent man, it dishonored God, and it destroyed Abraham's testimony. You know, the last point deserves some mention. No doubt God could have used Abraham as a witness in Gerar if only he had told the truth. 
But because he lied, he lost his testimony. He lost any opportunity to witness for the Lord. That's what sin does. Well, consider the following statement. I read this statement um, uh, some time ago. When, God, when good people do wrong, they do worse harm than when bad people do wrong. When good people do wrong, they do worse harm than when bad people do wrong. And it simply means that we expect bad people to act badly sometimes. We, we expect fools to be foolish, don't we? We expect the ungodly uh, to do ungodly things. But so when they do wrong, we're not all that surprised. In fact, we're surprised when the ungodly do something really good. But the world expects Christ followers to have higher moral standards. They expect us to live differently. When we don't, we hurt the cause of Christ and we drive people away from the kingdom. How much better it would have been if Abraham had just simply told the truth. If he had trusted God, if he had accepted the consequences. Look at verses 8 and 9. Abimelech got up early the next morning and quickly called all of his servants together. And when he told them what had happened, his men were terrified. Then Abimelech called for Abraham. What have you done to us, he demanded. What crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of this great sin? No one should ever do what you have done. <laughs> Once again, God allows Abraham to be publicly exposed and humiliated in the front of pagan people. Just as it had happened earlier in Egypt, Abraham's clever duplicity was shown in all of its ugly reality. And this too was the grace of God at work in his life because unless we see our sins as they really are, we're tempted to excuse ourselves and say of the sin, well, it may be wrong, but it wasn't all that bad. But in this case, Abraham can't blame anybody for his life. He can't blame any lack of experience because he's had, it's now been some 20, almost 25 years since he did this the first time in Genesis 12. He can't blame a lack of knowledge of God because he's now walked with God for about a quarter of a century. Nor could he accuse the people of Gerar of making unpleasant insinuations about Sarah. So there's simply no excuse for what he did. And so public humiliation is exactly what he deserves. In Proverbs 28, 13, we read, the person who covers their sin will not prosper. I love that verse. The person who covers their sin will not prosper. Because God can see in the darkness as well as in the light, he specializes in uncovering the hidden sins of God's people. Which is why things whispered in secret, the Bible said, will one day be shouted from the mountaintops. So what happened to Abraham will happen sooner or later to any of us who attempt to sin secretly. It will be exposed in the light. Having said that, it may seem strange to speak of God protecting Abraham, but that is exactly what this passage teaches us. Even though Abraham is clearly in the wrong, even though there's no obvious evil uh, ascribed to Abimelech, still God has his people and the devil has his, and never the two shall be confused in the, in the, in the eyes of the Almighty. God still fixed his love on Abraham. Abraham was the keeper of the covenant. And since he was still God's child and Abimelech was not, Abraham would be supernaturally protected by God, whether he deserved it or not. And in this case, he truly doesn't deserve it. But we can see God's protection of Abraham in four ways. 
First, we see God's protection of Abraham by warning, by warning Abimelech in a dream. Look at verse three in the story. But that night God came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, you're a dead man, for that woman you have taken is already married. But Abimelech had not slept with her yet, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't Abraham tell me she is my sister? And she herself said, yes, he's my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. In the dream, God responded, yes, I know you're innocent. That's why I kept you from sinning against me and why I did not let you touch her. Now return the woman to her husband and he will pray for you for he is a prophet and then you will live. But if you do not return her to him, you can be sure that you and all your people will die. Now, clearly, Abimelech has no idea who Sarah really was, and for that matter, no conception of Abraham's importance in the great plan of God. What he, when he claims innocence, it's the innocence of a man who unknowingly violated the law. But just as ignorance of the law is no excuse in our world today, neither will that excuse suffice in the courtroom of the Lord. So here God not only warns Abimelech, but he shows him a his grace, and he shows him a way of escape. He must return Sarah to Abraham and then ask the prophet to pray for him. And if he doesn't do that, he and the entire household will die. But we see God's protection of Abraham by, uh, uh, as well in striking Abimelech with physical sickness. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. Now evidently God struck Abimelech with some kind of ailment that prevented him from physically consummating a relationship with Sarah. And as painful as it may have been, this was God's grace shown to this pagan king because it kept the king from committing the sin of adultery for which he would have died at the hand of God. Thirdly, we see God's protection of Abraham by closing the wombs of Abimelech's household. Then Abraham prayed, verse 17, to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants, so that they could have children. For the Lord had caused all the women to be infertile because of what happened with Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now this ability, inability to have children served as a warning to the king of the terrible mistake that he had made taking another man's wife into his harem. And as the king, he had the right to take an unmarried woman, any that he wanted, but he could not take another man's wife and especially the wife of a prophet of God. By the inability to have children, the Lord would end Abimelech's line, meaning that he would have no heirs and his, his throne would eventually be taken over by somebody else. So God did this to show how greatly he thought of Abraham, but how far he was willing to go to protect his servant, even though he was disobedient. And then finally, we see God's protection of Abraham by exposing his sin publicly. The public exposure of Abraham's sin served several purposes. It forced Abraham to deal with the reality of his own sinful behavior. It exposed a continuing weakness in his life. This isn't the first time that he's lied. It prevented him from continuing on in sin and possibly making even further mistakes. It served as a warning to those watching that God hates adultery. It established the fact that God will not sit idly by while his children live in sin and it protected Sarah from the sin of adultery and protected the promised seed from corruption at the hands of pagans. 
You know, over a hundred years ago, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote that God will not allow his children to sin successfully. He says, we may sin and sin repeatedly and some sins we may indulge in for a long time, but the truth remains that God will always find ways to frustrate the lives of his people when it's their desire to live in sin. God sees to it that all of his children must fail at sin eventually. And that too is the grace of God at work. So what are the lessons that we are to learn from this story of Abraham? Oh, I think there are several. One, we may struggle in some areas of our life with sin till the day we die. Now in saying that, I realize that I'm at odds with an optimistic view of the Christian life that says that, um, you know, once we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, this, this recurring sin just disappears. Some people believe that uh, we are made perfect the moment of salvation and will never sin again. But that view, I think, downplays what it means to be human. If Romans chapter seven means anything, it means that we will all struggle with sin till the day we die. No one in, in this life ever grows to the place where sin no longer tempts us. Now, having said that, I'm quick to confess that I believe that through God's grace, we can win great victories with, in our struggle over sin. Some sins will be conquered, thank God. We grow in the grace of God. We stop doing things that are harmful to us and, harm, and, and against God's word, but we must never say, I'll never do that again because we simply don't know what we might or might not do given the right circumstances. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 warns us, he says, if you think you're standing strong, be careful. Be careful not to fall. Well, Genesis 20 proves that point. It appears that Abraham and Sarah made this covenant to lie about their marital status from the earliest days when they left home. Perhaps though we don't know this for sure, Abraham had lied about his wife at other times through the years. We certainly know that he did in Genesis 12 and here and again Genesis 20, but it may have happened at multiple times. But as we grow in Christ, we may begin to think of ourselves, you know what, I'm beyond this sin. I'm beyond that sin. For example, if we are troubled by outbursts of anger, we might think that we've arrived at a place in our Christian faith where anger is no longer a problem. Maybe that problem isn't anger, but it's envy or greed or lust or the temptation to drunkenness or drug abuse or anything else. We may convince ourselves that it's impossible for us to sin again. Or we don't say that so boldly, but many of us think of that in our minds. But it's not so. Allowing God's spirit to have full control of our life is a gradual process as we become more and more and more like Jesus. And as we are more conformed to the person of Christ, our awareness of sin increases, not decreases. And that happens because sin isn't just something we do, it's it's part of who we are as human beings. It's part of our human nature that's deeply corrupted. It's true that through our union with Christ, the righteousness of God has now been given to us. It's also true that in him we are made holy, but this work, though begun at the moment of conversion, is continued throughout the Christian life. Now, secondly, no one ever gets to the place where we are beyond temptation. Now, this kind of follows logically from what we just said. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read that the the, the temptation to sin, while coming in many different forms and many different disguises, will be with us forever. In fact, the great danger that Paul warns us about is the danger of presumption. It's precisely when we think we've arrived spiritually that we are in the most danger. Temptation is common to all of us. 
precisely because all of us face temptation every single day. And the great reformer Martin Luther taught that temptation or testing is one of God's means of developing us into mature Christians. Sometimes I hear a person say, you know, the devil put that thought in my mind. And it's usually a reference to some bad thought uh, that we think didn't come from us. And I've heard people say that in a quiet moment of reflection or prayer, some bizarre or evil thought suddenly comes to their mind and they think, where did that come from? Surely it must come directly from Satan. After all, he loves to distract believers. I can't answer that question with certainty, but this I do know that we, I do not know how we can separate one variety of sinful thought from another. You know that Satan may directly tempt us as he did Jesus? I don't doubt that for a moment. He may inject thoughts into our minds that we presume to be true. I'm not sure how to prove that biblically, but I think it can happen. No one knows the full extent of Satan's power or how he does his work. My concern at this point is to address what seems to be a tendency to assign really bad things in our life to Satan while attributing the not so bad things to ourselves. It's as if we're saying, you know, small sins, medium sins, that probably is me, but really terrible things, that's just Satan at work. You know, the devil made me do it. But this kind of analysis is not helpful because it tends to lead us away from accepting personal responsibility. How do we know that the uninvited thought came directly from Satan and not from ourselves? We really don't know. However we may feel about this matter, I suggest that Genesis 20 teaches us that every seasoned believer will face temptation in many areas of our life. And we're gonna have to face that temptation many times uh, throughout our life. Thirdly, when we refuse to deal honestly with our own particular weakness, God will allow us to be tested in those areas over and over again. You know, if a child refuses to be obedient to a parent, I think it sometimes seems that God places that child under the tutelage of a tough coach or a high school teacher, someone that helps to change that behavior or at least challenge it. If the child still doesn't learn obedience to authority, it might be a harsh employer, it might be military service where they're forced to learn that kind of submission to authority. And the same principle applies to many areas of our life, whether it's sexual temptation, whether it's crude language or anger or bitterness or tendency to lie, whatever it is, if we refuse to face our weaknesses, we're likely to be tested in those areas over and over and over again. Some say that marriage is the ultimate testing ground. We can hide our faults from others, but sooner or later, the time we spend together with our spouse tends to expose all of our hypocrisies, doesn't it? Love may be blind, but a long-term relationship is an eye-opener. In one sense, God's best tools to help us see ourselves as they really are are other people that we're in close relationship with. In a sense, marriage and a close relationship like that can be a means of grace that God uses to expose our faults and to motivate us to spiritual growth. Then fourth, honest pagans sometimes appear to be more righteous than unfaithful Christians. In this text today, Abimelech looks like the righteous one, not Abraham. And that fact should not surprise us because when God's people sin, we sink lower than an unbeliever. You know, I've often heard Christians say, you know, I'd rather hire an honest unbeliever. I don't wanna work for a Christian. 
See, we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And we have to know that there is a message that the people of the world take from our life, so we better be living it, the right message. God's grace will most often be seen in the aftermath of our own personal failures. And this is a word of hope. Abraham experienced God's grace throughout this story in spite of his sin, in spite of his deception, and the same is true for us. Even though grace is always at work in our lives, we'll comprehend it most in those moments of personal failure. That's when we need God's grace the most. And then finally, God does his best work through imperfect people. Think of some of the many weaknesses of the men and women of the Bible. There's Abraham who lied at least twice that we know of. There's Sarah who laughed at God. There's Moses who killed a man. There's Samson who slept with a prostitute. There's David who committed adultery. Peter who denied Jesus. God works through imperfect people like you and I. And I'm not sure that Abraham justified his sin by saying that he was, uh, uh, he was only trying to take care of his wife. He assumed that God would not take care of him if he told the truth. And so he sins. But God demonstrated the, just the opposite. And I find it encouraging that when God spoke to Abimelech concerning Abraham, he says, now return the woman to her husband and ask the prophet to pray for you. Here we see the grace of God at work again. And even though Abraham sinned, um, God still regarded him as a prophet, a sinning, disobedient prophet, but a prophet nonetheless. So finally, two quick takeaways from the story. First, it ought to lead us to a time of self-examination, honest self-examination. And I invite you this morning to think about, are there hidden areas in your life where you've harbored sin in your heart? Have you coddled some sinful tendencies and made excuses for sinful habits when instead you should be seeking the help of the Holy Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh? You know, if we're not ruthless, ruthless with ourselves, we stand in danger of doing exactly what Abraham did. So are there places in our life that we need to dig deep and, and uh, expose that sin? Secondly, this story is given to us in order to drive us to the cross because it's at the cross of Christ where the forgiveness is found. And if we feel some sense of failure because of our lapse or indiscretions in life, uh, we don't need to despair because grace abounds to those who confess their sins. If you're here today and you are a Christ follower, you may find forgiveness and healing by returning again to Jesus Christ, uh, who, faithfully, uh, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. People who have drifted away from God are always welcome back. God never turns away anybody who comes to him. But if you're unsure today where you stand with God, or if you feel the weight of some sin heavy in your life, that's a positive sign because the only person who can never be redeemed is the person who thinks they don't need salvation, they don't need God. And for the rest of us, there is abundant mercy and grace and pardon for all of our sins. Thanks be to God.